Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we, as we just read, as our brother Scott just read for us, we want you to incline your ear to us. God, we want you to hear us this morning. God, we are so prone to anxiety and fear and worry and doubt and discontentment. God, we know this about ourselves. And so right now, Lord, we want to let our requests be made known to you. We thank you that we have the benefit of your word before us. And Lord, we ask you that you would please give us relief, give us comfort, give us help from our anxieties this morning. Minister comfort to us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There has not been a text that I have anticipated preaching more than this one. As soon as Alex and I decided upon the book of Philippians for this series, I immediately began to think about this text and my eagerness to bring it before you. The reason for this is my own personal struggles with anxiety, with fear, with doubt, and the multitude of moments in which this text has ministered sweet comfort to me. Uh, I have long had bouts of anxiety, of panic, uh, seasons, prolonged seasons of that sort of thing, muscle spasms, heart palpitations, trembling, chest pain, sweating, insomnia. Uh, Not that long ago, uh, I sort of had a reputation among my closest friends as the, the guy who worries, Uh, the friend that's always anxious, the guy consumed with doubts about his standing with God. Uh, There have been long seasons where fear and dread have dominated my life. And during those times, if I walked into a church service and I saw on the docket a sermon called, Be Anxious for Nothing, I was all ears. I was there, desperate for hope, for comfort, Well, if you're anything like that this morning, I want to warn you, one sermon is probably not going to be the big fix for you. There are precious few silver bullets for our sorrows in this life, and it's doubtful that this sermon will be one of them. But it is my sincere hope that you'll be helped by it. If you find yourself troubled with anxiety, because this text has ministered to my soul on many, many dark nights. So, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Here's how I want to deal with this text. Three points. We'll start with the problem. We're anxious, anxiety, prone to that. Number two, the prescription. Then number three, the peace of God. Okay, so the problem, the prescription, and then the peace of God. First, the problem. Well, the problem is we are prone to worry. We're prone to anxiety. What do we mean by anxious when we look at this text. What do we mean? What do we not mean? Well, these are very complicated issues, right? And because that word anxiety is used a lot today, but 
the way the word anxiety is used doesn't overlap perfectly with how it's used here in this passage. Uh, Even the way in which the Bible uses the word anxiety isn't consistently bad. Alex actually brought up this point a few months ago in a sermon he preached from the Sermon on the Mount on, uh, I believe it was Matthew 6, called, I think it was called Comfort for the Anxious. Uh, so I'll be brief on making this point because Alex literally made the exact same point in that sermon, but it's helpful to draw our attention to it. Uh, there are two types of what we might call anxiety that we do not have in view this morning. Okay, two types that we don't have in view. First of all, we don't mean a sort of holy anxiety, a sort of sanctified concern that we might have about the things of God or God's people. Uh, The Greek word used for anxious here, do not be anxious about anything, it's used quite a few times in Scripture in the New Testament, and it always has to do with anxiety, with care, with concern, but sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. So I'll illustrate this just from the book of Philippians. Okay, so in our text, do not be anxious about anything. Turn back, like a page if you have to, to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Look at verses 19 and 20. Philippians 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned. Same Greek word that we have in our text who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Same word, same author, same book even, but two different meanings. One instance, boy, I wish I had someone like Timothy who would be anxious about your welfare. And the other, do not be anxious about anything. So even though the same word is used, one of these phenomena is sinful and to be avoided, the other is righteous and to be sought after. Paul wants to find someone with this sort of anxiety. So it's obvious that when Paul says, don't be anxious, he doesn't mean the same thing that he's talking about that he sees in Timothy. The sort of concern that he has for the welfare of God's people. Second thing we don't mean, so we don't mean that sort of holy concern that Timothy has, we also don't mean a sort of physiological anxiety. So when when people use the word anxiety today, they might be referring to real psychological, physiological conditions that a person can have in which panic or worry originates from some physiological circumstance that is beyond their control. Okay, so it originates from some sort of physiological circumstance that's out of their control. For instance, a couple of examples. Imagine someone has like an undiagnosed thyroid condition. It causes them to swing in and out of these moods of anxiety and depression. Uh, Well, we wouldn't tell such a person merely to just pray about it. No, he needs medical intervention. He needs needs medicine. He needs help. Uh, In his sermon a few months ago, Alex brought up this very example. Uh, Imagine a veteran who has PTSD because of his time on the battlefield. Some fireworks go off and his body shoots into a panic. Well, he's not sinning there, right? Uh, His body is having a reaction to trauma that is beyond his control. In my time as a teacher, I came to know quite a few students that had these sorts of recurring panic attacks. One that comes to mind, and there are all sorts of horror stories that I could tell of these students. But one, for instance, uh, her parents were chronic drug abusers 
They abused drugs while she was pregnant with this girl, my student. Uh, They eventually, her parents, were sent to prison for homicide. She was adopted from an orphanage, ugly orphanage situation. She was adopted out of that, and then her adopted family eventually abandoned her. This girl was prone to panic, anxiety, several times that ambulances had to be called for her. She suffered debilitating panic that were induced by trauma, again, out of her control. I don't think that's what we have in view here, those sorts of circumstances. These are anxieties that have physiological causes, and I'm not saying that these sorts of conditions are completely outside of Christ's jurisdiction. Right, Jesus has nothing to do with that. That's a medical problem. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that I don't think they fall under the purview of this text and this specific command. We use the word anxiety for those phenomena today. I don't think that's exactly what's meant by the word anxiety as it's used here. So, what do we, have, what do we mean? What do we have in view in this text? Well, I think it would be helpful just to call it worry. Fear. That sort of anxiousness. It can present itself like panic. Your worry might be so severe that you do have physical sorts of symptoms that arise, physical manifestations of the, the, anxi- the anxiety that you feel. But it does arise from your heart, your thoughts, your worries about the circumstances of this life. So let's examine that sort of anxiety. Let's examine this problem that we have of being prone to this kind of worry. I'm sure this comes as no surprise to you, but we are frail and frightened creatures. There's a reason that we're prone to anxiety. It's because there are 10,000 good reasons to be anxious. The world is a worrisome place. And I'm not just trying to be glib. I'm saying that the world is a frightful place. There's a lot in this world that should make us fearful by all good measures. It's a miracle, we might say, that we're not all anxious all the time. Right, but but we're Christians. What do we have to be worried about? That's a good question. But Christians are not insulated from the pains and difficulties and losses that everyone experiences in this life. Consider just a few causes for worry that we have to contend with. Okay, so just a few good reasons we might have for worry. Your sin before God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And many Christians have experienced that sort of terror that their sin has caused God to abandon them, be wrathful towards them, to finally be rid of them. I remember the very first panic attack I ever had. I didn't know that's what it was at the time. I didn't know that until later when I'd had a few more of them. But I was probably in like the eighth grade. Went to bed one night and uh, laid there in bed. And in about an hour... I had convinced myself that I had committed the unpardonable sin. The forgiveness, as the text says, I remember opening my Bible, reading this text, and just being filled with terror. That forgiveness would be denied me, both this life and the next. Terrified. I went and woke up my parents. It's the middle of the night by this point. Woke up my parents. I was shivering and trembling and shaking. Uh, My parents luckily had a, a Matthew Henry commentary set that I mean those spines were perfect condition pristine those things had never been cracked open they're actually 
they pulled out the cereal boxes. They were being used to keep the cereal boxes from going all the way back on our shelf. They pulled it out from that pantry and uh, turned to that text. And I received some comfort from Matthew Henry, a good Puritan commentator. But I was panicked at the idea that God would be wrathful towards my sin. Bad reason to panic? Should you tremble at the prospect that God, the Almighty, would hold your sins against you? It can happen to many of us. Another good reason for, de- for, for, for doubt or fear or anxiety, your inevitable death. Happy Sunday morning, by the way. <laughs> your inevitable death. This is a big one, right? Uh, many of us have felt a sense of panic that our own death is looming. You probably know someone that has these sorts of bouts of panic because they've diagnosed themselves with the terminal illness of the day, right? Sort of hypochondriac person. Some of you may be that person. I've been that person. Many of the times we'll be driving down the road, Michelle will be in the passenger seat, and I'll reach over and something hurts. And now she doesn't even say anything. She'll just reach over, grab my hand, put it back. You're fine. Well, again, isn't it a miracle that we don't all feel this way all the time? Right? Like, one day you will get the bad news from the doctor. Like, one day you're going to get the dreaded phone call. One day it's going to be you in the hospital bed. One day those pains will be a symptom of some underlying disease. So unless the Lord returns, your death is inevitable. And if that makes you frightened, join the club. The the author of Hebrews, he says clearly that the fear of death has kept mankind under lifelong bondage. We're enslaved to the fear that we will die. And some of you are right there, right now, this morning, perhaps. Another good reason that we might have to be anxious, the suffering of loved ones. We don't just have ourselves to worry about in this frightful world, right? We have parents that we love and spouses that, we've, that, that are precious to us and children that we care so deeply for. So it's not just something might happen to me. What if some horrible circumstance befalls them? You might be that spouse that's prone to panic if your spouse isn't home on time. Where are they? They should be home by now. Hope they're safe. Let me call. You might be that parent that finds it difficult to entrust your children to God's care constantly nervous and worried that something bad's going to happen to them. might revolve around their physical safety or their spiritual well-being. These lists of causes for worry could go on and on and on. Financial hardship, relational strain, hard conversations that are looming, global conflicts and political happenings, loneliness, sleeplessness. That's a hard one. Uncertainty regarding the future, feeling trapped by life circumstances like your job and your responsibilities, maybe being trapped by your family. All sorts of triggers that can stir up a sense of panic and worry in our hearts. And hear me say, they're frightening. Bad things happen in a sinful world. And they happen to all of us. So what? These things are all inevitably coming my way and I'm not supposed to be anxious. Seems impossible. This sort of anxiety is almost always fixated on the future. 
what has not yet taken place, terrified of what might happen. You know what that is? It's because you know you have no control over what's going to happen. You know, frightfully, that the future is not in your hands, outside of your control. You can take every preventative measure possible to stop your worst fears from coming to fruition, and they might not do the job. The things that you most dread might happen. Your immediate future is unknown and uncertain. What's going to happen tomorrow? What dreaded phone call might come your way? See, fear calls tomorrow into question. Tomorrow is in question. Right? You do not know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You see this even in small children. Small children, they, they thrive on pattern, rhythm, schedule. It gives them stability and security, right? Why is that? Why, why do children thrive on those sorts of patterns and schedules? Because they feel like they have a reliable sense of what's coming next most of the time. It makes them feel safe, Right? And they thrive in that safety. But part of becoming an adult is realizing what? I don't know what's coming. I, I, I have no idea what's coming down the pipe. Could be anything. And that leaves us feeling vulnerable and exposed and frightened. R.C. Sproul said, the focal point of every worry is the future. Even when we're anxious about present circumstances, things that are happening to us right now, the thing that sends us over the edge so often is, what if it's always like this? What if this doesn't change? What if it doesn't get better? What if it gets worse? What if? What if? What if? What if? What if? What if? What are we frightened of there? We're worried about the future. We're scared of things that might change in the future or things that might stay the same and continue on into the future. And when we're in this trap of anxiety, the governing thought that we have is, we just want it to stop. Just want it to stop. I don't want to feel this way anymore. If there's a specific focus of your worry, a hard conversation that's got to be had, or a medical diagnosis that's looming, you just want it to go away. You want to go back to normal. You want all this to disappear. You want to feel better. You want to know what the future looks like, and you want it to be agreeable to you. That's what we want. We just want it to stop. So the question, is this kind of worry sinful? It's tricky, right? Because it sounds like we're victims of our worry. Not, not, not perpetrators of our worry, right? We don't do worry. It just happens. It arises within us, right? Well, I believe this kind of worry is generally sinful. In fact, sometimes these sorts of anxieties can be a direct result of our sin. Right? Like if, if you've been a glutton, that might have effects on you that tend towards anxiety. Uh, if you've harbored a secret pornography addiction for some time and you find that your emotions are haywire, it's a direct result of your sin. What about worry that's not a direct result of some sin? It just seems to pop up. That sort of general fear, anxiety, dread that we have in view this morning. I believe it is sinful. I believe it typically has small thoughts of God 
while thinking long and often about ourselves. Worried about my well-being, my comfort, my plans, my health, my symptoms, my loved ones. And the more we obsess about me and mine, the more nervous we seem to be. Often this type of anxiety betrays the fact that we are not trusting God well. We're not depending on him. We're not content with his providential care. And so in those instances, that is sinful worry and it is to be put off. When we are confronted with it, we're to put it off like any other sinful thought. But if that's you this morning, please know, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to men. This is such a common thing to feel fear, anxiety, worry. Why else would the scripture be so full of admonitions not to fear, not to worry, not to be anxious, other than because we are so prone to it and there are so many things that would worry us? Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What command, what prohibition Jesus gives more than any other? Fear not. Don't fear. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. The Bible says elsewhere, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Psalmist says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. God says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. So we've looked at the problem, anxiety, worry. We've determined that in many circumstances, it is sinful. It is a distrust of God and his good care over us. So what's the prescription from this text? What does Paul offer? Instead of worrying, instead of being anxious, do not be anxious about anything, but instead we are to depend on God by bringing our requests to Him. According to this text, we're to pray. It's notable here that Paul uses four different words having to do with prayer just in this one little verse. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and then let your requests be made known. The, the verb there is to make known, to publicize, to announce. But he's using it in this instance to announce your requests to God. Now this doesn't break down into like four distinct ways we pray or four aspects of prayer or something like that. What it does do is it does illustrate the immense helpfulness and importance of prayer in the fight against anxiety and worry that Paul would emphasize it so much here. Well, how is it that prayer is a means of relieving our anxieties? I mean, if you've ever been anxious, you're just overcome by panic, you pray, God help us go away, in Jesus' name, amen. I mean, feel different all of a sudden, right? It's not like a magic wand that you wave over your anxiety and it just disappears. I mean, I have sat in moments of anxiety quoting this verse to myself over and over again and praying to God that this would be taken from me and he would restore to me the joy of his salvation. And I feel the same after I say amen. So does prayer work in relieving our worry? Do you hear what's wrong with that very question? Does prayer work 
in relieving our worry. To pray is to approach God himself. To humbly trust him. To depend on him. To to bring him our cares and requests. So even the question, is the act of praying going to help me feel better right now? It betrays the fact that we read a passage like this and we want prayer to just be some sort of talisman or magic incantation. Do this, feel better. That's what I want. It's like a quick acting medicine. Just pray and anxiety's gone. No, that is not what we have in view here. What we have is a prescription to come to God in gratitude and to depend on him, to trust him, to bring whatever it is that's worrying us to the only wise God and to trust him with the outcomes, whatever they may be. We're to give up the control that we think we have over our own lives and our own circumstances and give it to him. Because if you're going to try to maintain the illusion that you have control over the future, what are you going to do? You're going to worry. Try to pretend like you can control the outcome somehow. You're going to keep worrying. And what is your worry going to do for you? Nothing. If you're anxious about dying, is worrying about dying going to help you not die? You're trying to wind down for the night and you can't sleep. Is worrying about the fact that you can't sleep going to help you sleep? No. Of course not. And the Lord knows this. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? We are ultimately powerless to protect ourselves from the things we fear. But we are not hopeless. We have a loving God that beckons us to bring our troubles to his throne and leave them there. John Flavel, the Puritan, says, It would settle your heart to consider that by fretting and discontent, you do yourself more injury than any of your afflictions could do. Your own discontent, your own worrying, is that which arms your troubles with a sting. You make your burden heavier by struggling up under it. Your your impatience unfits your soul to pray for its troubles. Let's say that again. Your impatience unfits your soul to pray over its troubles or to receive any sense of good which God intends by them. Still quoting, affliction is a pill which, when wrapped up in patience and quiet submission, may be easily swallowed, but discontentment chews the pill and so embitters the soul. So you see, it's not just prayer. I feel anxious. God, thank you for this day. Help me not to feel anxious anymore. In Jesus' name, amen. Prayer is a bringing of our anxieties to God. It's a dependence on God. It's a trust in God and his providential care. It's a contentment with his providence. But I don't feel trust in God right now. I don't don't feel content. I just feel fear. Well, tell him that. I pour that out to him. Father, it feels impossible to trust you right now. My fears are overwhelming me, but I know that you are good and you do good. I know that whatever you ordain is right. God, I'm so afraid to die. So Lord, please help my unbelief. 
Cause me to trust you. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. John Calvin said of this phenomenon, this is our great consolation. This is our solace. That we may disburden into the bosom of God anything that harasses us. What a comfort. Christian, are you harassed by your troubles? Is your heart disquieted? The Lord would have you disburden into his bosom. He would have you lay your anxieties into his strong and mighty arm. I think of the old song, Tell It to Jesus. You know that song? Are you weary? Are you heavy hearted? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Listen to some of the lyrics. Are you weary? Are you heavy hearted? Tell it to Jesus. Are you grieving over joys departed? Tell it to Jesus alone. Do the tears flow down your cheeks unbidden? Tell it to Jesus. Have you sins that to men's eyes are hidden? Are you anxious what shall be tomorrow? Do you fear the gathering clouds of sorrow? Are you troubled at the thought of dying? Tell it to Jesus alone. You've no other such a friend or brother. Tell it to Jesus. Two more quick notes on this point of prescription. Paul's prescription to us instead of anxiety. He says, with thanksgiving. You see that in the text? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I just want to highlight that we're not only commanded to bring our needs to him, we're also to reflect on all that God has already done for us and given to us. And I know, when you're anxious, it's so easy to overlook these things. Even the best of God's gifts, when you are panicked, seems charmless and vain and empty. Call them to mind anyways. Bring them before God anyways, even if it doesn't help you feel better. Because guess what? It's not ultimately about you feeling better. It's about giving to God the, the glory and gratitude that is due him for his many kindnesses to you. So obey the Lord and bring him thanksgiving. One more note that I want to make on this prescription. Paul says, in everything, in everything, I think this is one of those situations where we can ask ourselves, what more can he say than to us he has said here? In everything, every trouble, every heartache, big, small, or otherwise, God bids us, come, bring your requests, cast your cares, bring me your burdens, disburden them upon me. In which of your maladies is your Lord disinterested? Like, what's the limit beyond which he doesn't care to hear the request? There's not one. No too big, no too small. What should we be anxious about? Nothing. What should we entrust to God's care? Everything. We've looked at the problem our anxieties, we've looked at the prescription, earnest, thankful prayer. Now let's look at the peace of God. And then I just want to spend the rest of the time making application. Paul promises that as we do this, we will be guarded by the peace of God. What does it mean 
that God's peace will guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I know this, that in times when I've been anxious, nothing in the world has sounded more attractive than this. You're panicked. The idea that God's peace would guard your heart and mind. P.T. O'Brien, the commentator, says this, the sure result of letting their requests be made known to God is that whether their petitions are granted or not, his peace, which is more wonderful than they can imagine, will stand guard over their hearts and minds. You hear that? Whether their petitions are granted or not, God's peace will guard your heart and mind. Your God is the God of peace. Paul says as much here in our text. He says that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. Look down two verses. Look at verse 9. If you think on whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's lovely, guess what? If you practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. See that peace of God, God of peace, finishing these two paragraphs? God is a God that is characterized by peace, completely undisturbed, never surprised, never worried, never fearful, in complete control. And he promises us that he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Christ himself promises us, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. So let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's beyond the understanding of human rationality. The unregenerate man cannot comprehend how someone could be faced with so much trial and, and, and so many reasons for fear and yet have peace. And we're promised that this peace will guard our hearts and minds. The word is the same kind of word that's used for a soldier that guards a city, a garrison that protects a, an area from siege or assault. The peace of God is like that guarding your heart, keeping watch over your mind. And again, this happens when you bring your requests to him. Not when those requests are granted. Not when he answers your prayers in the way you want him to answer. See how good that is? You plead with God to deliver you from anxiety, and even if the answer to that prayer is not yet, even if you don't feel God's peace at work within you, you can be assured, Christian, your heart and mind are safe, guarded by the Lord himself, protected by God's peace. It's often the case that we are to trust God's providential care in our affliction, especially when we don't feel that sort of deliverance. We still feel afflicted. I quoted Psalm 23 a moment ago. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Well, it's in the presence of the enemies that the table is prepared. Not delivered from the enemies in that circumstance. You just have a feast in the midst of them. It is in the valley of shadow that you fear no evil. Sometimes God in his wisdom chooses not to immediately deliver us from trials, but he promises always to be with us and to protect us through them, whether we feel it or not. John Flavel again. Do you rashly infer that the Lord has no love to you simply because he has withdrawn the light of his countenance? Do you imagine your state to be hopeless simply because it is dark? Do not be hasty in these conclusions. Sense and feelings are never suitable to judge the dispensations of God. 
their testimony can never be safely relied upon. Even when the sun is invisible to you, yet it still shines. So the objective of this text is not to just stop feeling anxious. It's to hope in God. It's to take your cares to Him. It's to entrust God with your requests, no matter how you feel, in spite of your feelings. The objective here is not necessarily to feel better. It's to believe better than you feel. Now, at this point, I just want to spend the rest of our time in application. So based on the text we've looked at, I just want to give some admonitions, some encouragements to close. First of all, you might say, I'm not particularly anxious. I don't find myself deeply frightened all that often. Well, let me say to you, first, continue to keep your heart with all diligence. Because a season of acute anxiety or worry may descend upon you unexpectedly. And it is hard to bring your heart into a right frame when you're in the midst of affliction. But if your heart is consistently settled and stable in the Lord, it may serve to lessen the trial when it is upon you. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, said about those who suffer greatly, the affliction will be greater if the heart is unsound. For if your shoulder is out of place, the burden you carry is greater. It is perhaps because your heart is so unsound that your affliction is so great to you. End quote. So it's hard to right that ship in the midst of the storm, right? So you don't feel particularly anxious? Praise God and continue communing with him. When things seem to be going well, lay that foundation of regular secret time with God, of diligent hope in the promises of Scripture, a fixed attention on heavenly things. Because it may be that it's easier to marshal that sort of heavenward focus when you are beset with worry. But if you've been negligent in all those things when times are good, do not expect to easily detach your hopes from this present world when you're in the midst of trouble. It's hard to do. What if I'm anxious right now? I'm anxious. I'm fearful. Let me just give, I have eight statements that I want to give. I might not get to all of them. One, remember God's care for you. If you're anxious, you're troubled, your Father loves you. Christ himself has told you, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Aren't two little sparrows sold for a penny? Each sparrow only worth half a penny. You get it? Are not two sparrows sold for a single penny? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So therefore, fear not for you are of more value than many sparrows. Your father cares about each and every little sparrow. Will he not care for you? Your father shows you the utmost care and concern in every imaginable circumstance. And if that wasn't good enough, that your father cares so deeply and intimately for you, you have Christ. 
You have Christ interceding for you. You have an advocate with the Father. Christ continually interceding for you. A living guarantee of God's goodwill and perpetual care towards you. Christian, please elevate your view of Christ's sympathies toward you. You anxious, you burdened with a load of care, tell it to Jesus. He delights to bring comfort and relief to his people. He is not distant from you. On the contrary, he is moved by your infirmities because he sympathizes with you in your weakness. Your Lord knows what it is like to contemplate his own death with agony. He has suffered through the dark night of the soul, pleading without sleep that the Father would allow this cup to pass from him. And even then, just before he knowingly enters into that dark night of the soul, what was his concern? What was he talking about? Let not your heart be troubled. He is about to die. He knows he's about to die. And what is his concern? That you might be troubled. That you might be afraid or frightened. So when you are anxious, when you are filled with dread, with panic, assure yourself, my Lord is with me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He is not far from me because of my worry. Rather, his heart is moved to sympathy for me. He is yet closer to me precisely because of my weaknesses. Paul says as much in our text. Look at the text. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is near. The Lord is close to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. Christian, Jesus is grieved to see you, his beloved, in such deep and abiding unhappiness. And he, the man of sorrows, sympathizes with you in it. How perfectly suited is he to be our Savior, right? Two, I'm anxious right now. Remember God's care for you? Trust that God has good purposes in your anxiety, in your fear. Whatever your difficulty, remember that it is currently, right now as we speak, being measured out with exact precision by your Father who loves you and cares for you and only has his good will and your joy in view. Alex announced this to the church upon Jenna's diagnosis. He said, if we knew everything that God knew, this is the outcome we would have prayed for. But why? What, like, what is God trying to do? I love this quote by John Piper. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you may be aware of three of them. Well, here are three. What might he be doing? Well, perhaps the Lord seeks to bring you into greater reliance upon him. Maybe he wants you to, to lean on him more closely, to depend on him more carefully. And you see this, right? When you're anxious, when you're worried, when you're frightened, you sing differently, don't you? Like the church gathering feels different. The waves really do toss you against the rock. Why? Well, because you're acutely aware of how frail you are. 
you see clearly your need for God's constant care. I mean, how differently do you sing? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When you are conscious that all around your soul has given way, he then is my only hope and stay. You sing that differently. You rely upon God and worship him and and depend on him differently. So perhaps God brings these bitter providences to make us rely more upon him. Or maybe, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, this has befallen you so that one day you may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that you've been comforted with by God. Paul says that clearly. You've received comfort from God. You've been in this affliction and been comforted so that you can comfort those who are in any affliction. If you've been there, if you've been anxious, if you've been frightened, it helps to find people who understand, doesn't it? More than that, it helps to find people who, because they understand, are uniquely equipped by God to administer comfort to you. And perhaps God is fitting you right now, as we speak, to be such an instrument of comfort to someone you may not even know right now. Trust his care. Three, remember God's care. Trust that he has good purposes in it, even if you can't see them. Three, wait on the Lord. The most stalwart and effectual prayer, the most fixed gaze on Christ may not bring immediate relief. In fact, it probably won't bring immediate relief. But Christian brother, sister, hear me. Wait on the Lord. Purpose to die in his arms rather than live anywhere else. Be patient. I know when you're anxious, when you're panicked, you just want it gone now. It's hard to even think about anything else. You just want it to stop. And the discipline of waiting on the Lord may seem to be more than you can do. But take courage while you're waiting on the Lord. Even if you don't feel it, your heart and mind are safe. They are guarded by God's own peace. So if you fear your faith will fail, take heart. Christ will hold you fast. Say to your God, even though I am exceedingly miserable, I know and believe that you are good and you are wise and that you care for me. So into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. That's what faith is for. We don't judge the Lord by feeble sense. We trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Wait on the Lord. Number four, believe the promises of God. So many promises. A multitude of promises that are given to us in Scripture that are meant to give us relief in our fears. The whole context of Philippians makes clear that uh, we are to be hopeful about the future. Right? That's come up in this book. Remember, we are laboring in hope of a glorious resurrection. Should that promise be a comfort to us in our fears? That we will be resurrected? That your lowly body will be transformed to be like his glorious body? I mean, if you're afraid of dying, should it make a difference to you that your Lord looks you in the eyes and says, you will never die? Anyone who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who believes in me will never die. 
Yes, that should bring us comfort. Remember, from Pilgrim's Progress, what is it that unlocks the dungeon of Doubting Castle? Where giant despair is beating the Christian pilgrim. It's the key of promise that unlocks every door in Doubting Castle. So believe the promises of God. Five, fix your mind on God and others and not upon yourself. Please listen carefully here. The Bible commands you to direct your thoughts and to control your mind. Look at the very next verse. Paul's about to do that very thing. He's about to tell you, finally, brothers, think on whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely. If there's any virtue, if there's any praise, think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Often, our anxieties only continue to survive as we give them attention. The more we look at ourselves, the more we look at our feelings, our symptoms, our worries, the more anxious we become. I was listening to a clinical psychologist recently, and he was talking about anxiety and depression. Listen to this. Here's what he had to say. Quote, Excess concern about the self is statistically associated with self-conscious suffering. For example, you can discriminate between people who are depressed or psychotic and those who are not with about 75% accuracy based on the number of self-referential pronouns used in their speech and writing. So the more you use I, me, we, 75% tell more likely to be anxious or depressed or psychotic even. The, the quote continues, the more people focus on themselves, statistically, the more miserable they are. Acute self-consciousness is so closely associated with misery that they may be essentially the same thing. Acute self-consciousness might as well just be misery. Self-centeredness was, best I can figure, the root cause of all of my anxieties. An excessive concern and attention to myself. The context of this book as a whole makes it clear. Paul wants us to be, remember, concerned with the affairs of others and not only our own interests. Focusing on God and the resurrection and heavenly things, not on this world and our lives. I mean, our anxieties have so much to do with our attention. Like, you want to die well? We don't die well by focusing on death and dying. You don't die well by despairing your lot. You die well by fixing your heart's eyes on Jesus. I remember John Piper telling this story of sitting next to the bedside of a young man who was dying. Remember the young man's name was Michael Boyum. Heard this sermon years ago. I don't know how that's in there, but the young man is in and out of consciousness last hours of his life, and John Piper, his pastor, is sitting by his bedside, whispering into his ear over and over, Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. Weak faith doesn't make Christ less righteous. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Christ is your righteousness. Over and over again. That's how you help your brother or your sister die well. You fight and labor to get their eyes off of themselves, off of the things that they hoped would be, and fix them on Christ. 
Self-centeredness is the enemy of our peace. A couple more. These will be short. Number six, what do I do if I'm anxious? Lean on your brothers and sisters. When we're anxious, when we're deeply worried, we tend to isolate, both from God and from others. Don't do that. Don't retreat. You need the good gift of Christian companionship, maybe now more than ever. And if you have a brother or sister, a spouse, a child, a friend who is anxious, you want to help them, be patient with them. No quick fixes here, typically. Suffer long with them. You may not understand the depth of their anxieties, but we all know something of fear and worry, right? So don't try to get them to just snap out of it. Do your best to weep with those who weep. Seven, don't neglect common graces. Honestly, some of the seasons in my life where anxiety has plagued me were times when I simply was eating really poorly, was not exercising, was not getting outdoors, was not being careful about going to bed on time. I won't camp out on this point, but that's one of the places I start when I notice anxiety creeping back into my life. I just examine those, those areas of my life. Am I sleeping? Am I eating well? Am I getting outside? Am I exercising? These common graces are important because you're a whole being. You're not just a spirit. You're not just a body. But your body and your spirit have a unique and complicated relationship with one another. Also on this note of common grace, if you do have some sort of physiological ailment that does require medication, don't be discouraged by that. Don't be discouraged if you have to take medicine for this sort of thing. Your body and your soul are complicated in their relationship with one another such that using medicine does not mean you lack faith. Our brother Nathan Streer uh, once gave this uh, piece of advice in the equip class on anxiety and depression. He said this simply, medication is often necessary, but rarely sufficient. So it's one caution there. Don't put all your chips on medicine. Don't think that just because you have medicine, you no longer need God. It's not the case. There may be other things that need treatment as well. Uh, if you have more questions on these sorts of questions, two resources that are great. Uh, again, I've mentioned several times Alex's sermon that he did about four months ago here. Uh, Comfort for the Anxious, I think is the name of it. Or the Equip class that was done a few months ago on anxiety and depression. Both of those can be found online. Wonderful resources. Finally, what do I do if I'm anxious? Well, the text makes clear, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Who's the I there? Who's writing this? Who's telling them to rejoice always? Well, it's Paul in prison. John Calvin had this to say about Paul's state here. Quote, if the Philippians are appalled by persecutions or imprisonments or exile or death, here is their apostle setting himself forward who amidst imprisonments in the very heat of persecution amidst apprehensions of his own death, is not merely himself joyful, but even seeking to stir others up to joy. So instead of worrying, instead of doubt, 
Stack your circumstances up to Paul's and take seriously his double command here to rejoice in the Lord. So in closing, if you're anxious today, please know it won't always be this way. The darkness will lift. The clouds will part. One day, never to return. In the end, the shadow is only a small and passing thing. There is light and high beauty forever beyond their reach. Uh, I just want to finish by reading lyrics to one more familiar song. It's a song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows your every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Let's pray. God, we confess our sins to you. We do not want to hide them. We don't want to sweep them under the rug. We don't want to appear falsely strong. We want to say to you what you already know. We are weak and frail and frightened. We have no control over what is going to befall us. We can do our best to avoid troubles and tribulations, but we know they're coming. You've told us they are. But Lord, we want to have courage. We want to take heart. So, Lord, help us. God, in moments of panic, if there's any believer here that is just besieged with anxiety and worry this morning, God, send your spirit to help. Deliver him. Deliver her. Please bring them back into shady pastures and green pastures and still waters. God, bring them back to a place of peace where they can more easily rejoice in your salvation. But God, if you tarry in your deliverance, give them faith. God, I pray that their faith would not fail. Lift them up, preserve them, keep them, establish them. Do all these things in Christ and because of Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.